and wait to react, but when you react, smack it! Smack it! Smack it! I win! Smack it! New from Hasbro! Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 88, The Pirates of Orion, and Bam. From Star Trek, the animated series. This one welcomes you to Mission Log, a Star Trek podcast of Roddenberry. Honorary Commander Ken, am I? And I'm John Champion. Each week we take apart a Star Trek story or two, analyzing it for messages and morals and such. Disassemble them, we do. I, Ken, I, are, are you imitating Bem or Yoda? Bem, dude, Bem. I'm, I'm, I'm like Bem Scala Bem over here. I'm like Bem, the two of us need look no more. Bem there, done that. I'm trying to get all of these out of the way early. Did you? Are, are you? Are you good now? Or is this going to be throughout the rest of the episode? Because here's the suggestion: as we're recording, you just write it down and decide: should I really do this in the air? <laughs> and if you hesitate, just crumble it up, and throw it away. On the other hand, this could be the deadliest drinking game episode of Star <laughs> Trek ever, or, or mission log, excuse me, ever. Just every time I do a bad bem pun. You know, take another shot. And if you're still standing at the end of it, well, you really should have sat down because it's going to be a while. But also, (laughs) uh, good on you because, yeah, this could could get ugly. Well, if you have your own uh, horrifically annoying BEM puns, go ahead, contact us. You can share those with us or other thoughts on the episode. Uh, Reach us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. The handle in all three places is Mission Log Pod. You can call us at 323-522-5641 and you can email us missionlog at roddenberry.com Remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, the moment for which I've been waiting all week. Oh, God. (laughs) John Champion hits us with a little Star Trek trivia. John? Okay. Well, here it is, Ken. The big moment that we've all been waiting for today in the episode BEM, we are finally, finally revealed the first uh, instance that Kirk's middle name becomes, well, is it canon? Is it? Uh, Well, this is the first time that we learn that Kirk's middle name is, in fact, Tiberius, that middle initial T. Um, Now, David Gerald claims that he came up with the name kind of in an offhand comment at a Star Trek convention. So I can just picture it. Somebody yells, hey, what's the T stand for? And he goes, Tiberius, Uh, you know. Okay, I'll give him that. Now, it it has been reported, he actually said in an interview that he was influenced by I. Claudius, um, of course, the huge uh, BBC production miniseries that aired on PBS in the U.S. in about 1976. So, hey, um, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah, wait, wait, what? Because, Is there a rift in the space-time continuum? I was going to say, because he calls himself James Tiberius Kirk in 75. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is 74, actually. Early season two, and season two started in September of 1974. So a little further back in time now, uh, the book I, Claudius, came out well before. So it could very well be that he had read the book, but then when I, Claudius, actually aired, that was a huge, huge deal and maybe reminded him of that, that, oh, hey, that's where I was influenced to come up with Kirk's middle name. Um, See, it's interesting, though, that he mm-hmm. thinks it was just an offhanded comment. I mean, we came this close to having James 
Tito Kirk. Or, yeah, or exactly. <laughs> something along Ting Ting. Yeah. Like, wow. <laughs> right. There's so many right. things it could have been. Could have. Now, it's kind of interesting to me, though, that that is such a known thing. James Tiberius Kirk. It rolls off the tongue. Every Star Trek fan knows that. And yet it was not created. It was not committed to film until Star Trek, the animated series. And here's what's interesting, kind of looking forward in trivia. Um Tiberius was used again in uh, the novelization of Star Trek, the motion picture. So Gene Roddenberry kind of saw that and went with it. It's like, sure, go with it. We'll, we'll call him Tiberius. He's not mentioned again by name, James Tiberius Kirk, until Star Trek VI. Really? So, yeah, yeah. Isn't that crazy? So how many times does that actually come up on air then? Because it's, it's a joke in um, the reboot. And Star Trek, the 2009, you know, where, where they're trying to decide what they're going to name him. Right, right. And he says, why don't we, uh, she says, uh, Kirk's mother says, why don't we name him after your father? And he says, Tiberius? No, that's a terrible name. Right, right, right. I mean, is it really just mentioned a handful of times? Because you're just, right, we all know Kirk's middle name. Yeah, yeah, it's just a handful of times. And, huh. um, and I thought, it's just so cool to me that the animated series is what launched that piece of character trivia that carries on and, and is so well known by Star Trek fans. Very kind odd that that would have carried over, though, because these are kitty stories. <laughs> well, you know, Ken, funny <laughs> you should mention that these are kitty stories. I want to talk a little bit about DC Fontana, and uh, the reason that I want to talk about her we'll, we'll get to here in just a moment. I found this great quotation from her. She says, we did Star Trek stories. We did not do kitty stories. We did not dumb down our stories. The restraint was the half-hour format. And at that time, it was only 23 to 24 minutes of storytelling time. And we were used to 54 minutes of storytelling time in the hour series. We did have to simplify, but I felt we were doing Star Trek and being faithful to our audience. Many people, fans, were skeptical about it. But I went to the World Science Fiction Convention in Toronto in September of 73 with only the animated opening credits to show to an expectant audience. But I have to tell you, when that familiar starship flashed across the screen in the old way with the music and the names of the actors involved, there is a standing ovation. Kind of cool. cool. Yeah, yeah, that is pretty cool. And uh, I, I will say, it's interesting that you she calls that a limitation or calls that a restraint because mm -hmm. that's actually, that to me has been a surprise strength yeah. of these shorter stories. You don't have quite as much padding, generally. It's speaking. really true. Yeah, yeah. It, it's really true. I mean, there are episodes of the original series where we said, hey, if they, boy, if they had only cut this down to half an hour, yeah. <laughs> maybe it would have worked better. Um, now, the reason that I wanted to mention uh, DC, Dorothy Fontana here, is that technically she was gone by now. Uh, the second season. She was a uh, a producer and story editor on season one of the animated series. Um, and remember, Gene Roddenberry at this point was the executive consultant. So um, he was around, but, you know, just like in original Star Trek, there starts to be this shift where a lot of the old guard are kind of not as involved as they used to be. Um, the animated series was really Filmation's show. And that's relevant, especially to one of today's stories, Bem. Um, it was originally rejected for the original series. And then Dorothy rejected it again for the animated series. 
Um, but you have to understand a little background here. She and David Gerald were friends. Um, he was the first writer that she called when they actually launched the animated series. And um, she had already bought the story. So the story idea was there. She had already bought it. And it had already gone through some revisions, but it just didn't get made for the animated series. Um, for the first save- season. Uh, correct, correct. And then to save money, Filmation went back to those purchased but undeveloped scripts to flesh out season two. So we'll see a few of those as we wrap up season two of the animated series here. And speaking of staff changes, remember that Hal Sutherland was a partner in Filmation, along with Lou Scheimer and Norm Prescott. Uh, Sutherland's name still appears at the end of every episode of season two, but it was actually Bill Reed who directed these final six. Uh, His name appears in the opening credits, but not in the closing credits. Um, He has many, many more technical credits on the animation end of things, but he does have some notable directing credits alongside Star Trek, such as He-Man, She-Ra, and Ghostbusters, that other filmation show, not the Ghostbusters that you might be confusing it with. So uh, there's a little bit of a, a legacy there for filmation as well. Cartoon number one, The Pirates of Orion. Act one. Along with saving the galaxy and exploring strange new worlds, the Enterprise crew gets to do some pretty routine stuff too, like attending the dedication ceremony of a new science academy on Deneb 5. That's just where they're headed. And not a moment too soon, since nearly everyone has been infected with choreocytosis. No biggie. McCoy got them all ship-shape again, and everyone is on their way to what will probably be a long day of dress uniforms, boring speeches, and ribbon-cutting. Except for Spock. He passes out right at his station. While all the humans on board have shaken off the infection, Spock got it bad. It's not just an irritant. It's actually fatal for Vulcans. McCoy explains that the disease can be treated with strobilin. They've got a synthetic on board that will help, but they need to get the good, naturally occurring stuff to actually cure him. The nearest place is four days away, and Spock has maybe three days to live. Kirk works out a rendezvous. The Potemkin will deliver the drug to the Huron, a freighter, that will meet the Enterprise, thus cutting down on the travel time. No sweat. Kirk has one of those grown-up talks with Spock. He's had to cut duty time in half in order for Spock to conserve his energy. Of course, Spock gives it the old, but, but, and Kirk cuts him off. Cut to the bridge of the Huron. They've got the strobilin along with a huge supply of dilithium. Before you can say that's got to be valuable to someone, they spot an unknown ship trying to intercept them. It's a mean-looking ship, and it will get to the Huron before the Huron can get to the Enterprise. Ready for some more bad news? McCoy has been injecting Spock all along with the temporary dose of strobilin, but that drug's effectiveness has worn off. They really need to get the real stuff now. Oh, and for good measure... Dr. McCoy leaves that part of the news out after he treats Spock. Act 2. Captain O'Shea on board the Huron is trying to contact the unidentified vessel. No reply, and the Huron can't outmaneuver them, try as they might. The enemy finally makes contact. Prepare to be boarded. The Huron did manage to eke out an emergency signal, which the Enterprise picked up, and now Kirk puts his ship in pursuit. When they arrive, they find that the Huron has been attacked 
If we wanted any more help out of Spock, well, too bad. He falls unconscious as the temporary drug effectiveness is now gone. On board the Huron, Kirk, Scotty, and Uhura find an unconscious crew and unfortunately not much else. The dilithium is gone and so is the strobilin. We're cutting it close. Spock only has about 20 hours to live. The Huron crew are beamed back to the Enterprise for recovery while the Enterprise starts pursuit of that alien ship, putting them right at the edge of an asteroid belt. It's not just any asteroid belt. These are unstable asteroids the kind that like to explode on impact. Act 3. Finding the enemy vessel, well, the Enterprise did get fired upon, it turns out that they are Orions, or Orions, however you want to say it. The Orions are playing fast and loose with their supposed neutrality by attacking Federation ships. Kirk has no time for a political debate, though. He just wants the drug, and he tells the Orion captain that he'll forget everything else if they can just get it. To meet in a neutral place, Kirk agrees to meet on the surface of an asteroid face-to-face with the Orion captain. Orions can't be trusted. Everybody knows it. And if our crew could only hear the conversation on board that other ship, they are hatching a plan to bring an explosive down to that unstable asteroid, which will wipe out them and both ships. Hey, the Orions are nothing, if not thorough, when it comes to covering their tracks and leaving the appearance of neutrality. Kirk and the Orion captain beamed down to the asteroid, and the Orion was kind enough to bring the strobilin. Not sure why the formality, though, since he immediately lets Kirk know about the explosive and how he's planning to turn this unsuccessful piracy mission into one of suicide. Good thing they both have those glowing force field belts. Kirk lunges at the Orion to take him down, mano a mano. Scotty beams both men up to the Enterprise in the nick of time. They've disarmed the Orion, but he's really determined and pulls out a poison pill. Kirk intercepts that, too, and he knows that the other ship is probably ready to self-destruct. Time for a little negotiation. Kirk tells the Orion captain to call off the destruction. No matter what, he will stand trial, and it just wouldn't look good to leave a bunch of dead Orions in his wake. You might be wondering about Spock at this point. Who could blame you? He's fine now. Fine enough that McCoy is ready to rib him again about all the usual stuff, green blood and stubbornness. They're fine, and the Enterprise, now with prisoners, heads off to the adventure of the opening of the Science Academy on Deneb 5. The end. I got a costume question, and this <laughs> may this may affect my next time in Vegas. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Uh, is that how an Orion dresses, <laughs> or is that how an Orion pirate dresses? Oh, well... You know, we get into dangerous, you know, timeline jumping stuff here uh, because the only Orion male that we have seen so far was actually disguised as an Andorian. Right. So can I think the best tactic here is to dress as an Andorian and when people come and go, hey, look, it's an Andorian. You're like, no. Sucker. Sucker. I'm an Orion in disguise. That's not a bad idea. And then you got two costumes for the price of one, too. We're not timeline jumping, though, because we've already been through that time. Well, no, but we do see Orion males later, much, 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 much later. Okay, and are they dressed like these guys? Nope, not at all. Ah, man. (laughs) So it's an animated Orion or an animated Orion pirate. Right. All right. Yeah. I don't know. Hey, um, I don't think Kirk is a very good captain in this episode. No, why is that? Well, he's a starship captain, right? You said in your description that, you know, he arranges a rendezvous. Yeah. And he does arrange the rendezvous, but he doesn't think of it. 
No, it's McCoy. It's who McCoy thinks. who thinks of it, right? And Kirk's yeah. like, "Well, okay, so we're, how far away are the drugs? Uh, they're they're four days away." Yeah. Okay. And how long does Spock have? Well, these drugs will work for two, but he could probably hold out for three. Mm-hmm. Okay, but Spock will be dead at the end by the time we get the drugs. And if Bones is were... like, Bones <laughs> is like, yes. And right, and Kirk says, if only there were some way that we could get there. <laughs> right. And McCoy's like, well. all the other ships. Right, just spitballing here. What if we called somebody? Mm-hmm. You know, somebody maybe with another ship. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and, and Kirk's like, that is brilliant. Listen, can we just, you know, pretend like I thought of that? Because really, I, sh- <laughs> I should have. I, uh, I would take it a step further, Ken, and I would say send out a mass email. To every starship captain and just say, if you happen to have any Strobelin on board. Right, right, right. Please meet us. Yes. Yeah, yeah that's a good idea. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's a very good idea. Or just get on the ship's intercom or whatever, because they're all over the place. At that very moment, actually, when Kirk is trying to figure this out and he asks the ship computer to help him out, did the computer just sound very tired to you? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I really wondered about Or maybe just a little depressed at the thought of Spock, because it, you know, it was Majel doing the voice, and Nurse Chapel had the history with Spock, and you just think, oh, wow, we're just really depressed at the idea of Spock not being well. Yeah, that could maybe be it. Yeah. You know, I say that Kirk was a bad captain, but it's also possible that what we were dealing with was a— uh, was a younger uh, a younger writer, let's say. I know you've got some trivia specific to this episode. I do, yeah. It, it's a good thing that you should mention that. Howard Weinstein was 19 years old when he wrote this. He was the youngest person to have a script produced for Star Trek. Uh, now, he went on to write many, many more stories for comic books and novels in the Star Trek world and other science fiction as well. But uh, he tells some great stories about how when he was the 19-year-old kid and uh, prior to that, he had written sci-fi short stories for uh, his high school uh, publication. They had a you know, literature publication. And uh, he kind of reformatted it into a script. It got sent off to California by his agent. And uh, I, I say agent, it was actually his dad's agent that kind of made the connection. And it went to DC Fontana, who was no longer working on Star Trek, the animated series. So she sent it back. Well, when the next season happened, when, when Star Trek, when the announcement was made that it would be renewed for a second season, he resubmitted it to the production offices and they actually picked it up. And they didn't know that he was 19 years old at the time, but they made the show. And uh, he talks about how he it was a week before his 20th birthday and he's sitting in a dorm room at his college with about 30 of his friends watching this episode air live. So it must have been just an awesome moment for this kid. Yeah, I would imagine so. It was interesting to me that they could synthesize strobilin, that uh, only the natural stuff could actually cure what ailed Spock. So I, I would just assume that they are chemically the same thing. You know, <laughs> if, if I if I can combine two oxygen and one hydrogen atom, then uh, it's chemically water. Mm-hmm. Now that there may be impurities in other water, and maybe there are impurities in strobilin that uh, they haven't figured out how to replicate yet. But, um, but you know, I'm I'm glad they found it. <laughs> yeah, I don't I, I don't really understand that at all. Yeah, I also um, don't understand why they couldn't just. I mean, is there no way to? It's not a lifetime deal, but I mean, there are ways to to filter blood out of somebody and then back through them. I mean, mm-hmm. it's kind of weird to me that you know, 200 years from now, or 200 something years from now, or 100 yeah. something years from now, however many it is, that we wouldn't still have. Um, I'm trying to. It's like dialysis, right? 
right that we wouldn't right. that we wouldn't have something like dialysis but you know better and less invasive and and not quite as harmful yeah but maybe it doesn't work on Vulcans. maybe the well, copper sort of you know gums up the dialysis machine right right well it was an interesting uh description and they actually showed the the graphic on screen of spock's green blood is green blood cells yep and and mccoy is describing this and you know well it, it's it, essentially that his blood cells are being stopped from absorbing oxygen, from bonding with oxygen to carry it to his body. I thought that was very neat and a, a very detailed description of what was going on. But yeah, you'd hope that at least on Vulcan, maybe they had come up with <laughs> some sort of device to at least temporarily stave off this disease. Um, hey, here's a couple of other little bits of trivia. I looked up the names of the other ships, the Huron, mm-hmm. which uh, is uh, a tribe of Native Americans. Uh, and Huron is obviously Lake Huron. There are many places where Huron is used um, currently. Potemkin, I thought, was really interesting because it has a couple of meanings, and at least in pop culture, uh, the two best known. Have you ever heard the term of Potemkin villages? Uh, No. A Potemkin village is a, a place set up to make it look like you have a, a town or a city or uh, some sort of population where you actually don't. Hmm. So this is kind of used as like a military tactic where you set up this fake town to make it look like you're populated in an area where maybe you don't want your enemy to attack or maybe you do want your enemy to attack, but they're just attacking a shell town. Um, famously, the North Koreans have a shell city right at the border, all these huge buildings, and they're not used at all. It just makes it look like they have a giant city there. Um, and then there was also famously the movie Battleship Potemkin, which is one of the best-known propaganda films of the early Soviet era. So um, interesting to me that in a couple hundred years, we'd be naming a ship after, well, a propaganda ship <laughs> from this movie. So, uh, yeah, but kind it's of a, a cool name. It's interesting. It's almost like a tip of the hat to the idea that, okay, there's this other ship involved, but we're not going to bother showing it to you. Oh, trust me. <laughs> right it's there it's there right yeah right <laughs> but, but we're not even gonna yeah no it's yeah that's what we call it yeah um spock in this episode is dealing with a deadly disease and and he's acting exactly as we would expect him to behave as a patient <laughs> he's you know he, he defies orders and uh he's kind of you know, you, you fully expected the scene where Kirk was going to say, I'm cutting your duty in half. And Spock's like, oh, but I can do it really. And Kirk's, no, 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 no. And I thought this was kind of heavy stuff for, again, an assumed audience of kids that they're dealing with a deadly disease. And these are all the stages that Spock is going through fighting this deadly disease. Yeah. Although he's also I think they should have just relieved him of duty. Because he's at yeah, the science yeah. station, he's on the bridge, and Kirk's like, hey, Spock, yeah, I've got a question. Nothing. Right. And Kirk's like, uh, Spock? Oh, sorry, sorry, sir, I was putting myself in power save mode. <laughs> right. You know, while right. I'm on the bridge, at my post, right? Yeah. I- I'm second in command. And so let's say, I don't know, lightning comes out of a console and strikes you. And things like this have happened on the Enterprise, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, right. And I'm over here, you know, zoned out. Because I'm sick. Okay, well, at that point, I'm thinking maybe let's go ahead and get him to sick bay, or at least to his quarters. It just seemed, yeah. like, a, seemed like a bad idea. I know, I know. And, well, and speaking of sick bay, I, I thought it was funny that um, that Spock calls out McCoy 
when McCoy says the ejection won't hurt a bit. Yeah. And Spock says it's both unnecessary and untrue. And I'm yeah. sure that many kids could relate. You know, any kid getting a flu shot or anything, they're <laughs> like, yeah, I've heard that before. Boys and girls, if you think doctors lie, Star <laughs> Trek says you are absolutely right. Not, I mean, Just, not only does he say to Spock, yeah, you know, this is going to hurt, and it does. Mm-hmm. And you're like you say, Spock calls him on it. But he also tells Spock that the drug is working. Right. Well, he doesn't tell Spock that the drug is working, but he indicates to Spock that the drug is working. It's and, a lie and, of omission. And Chapel's yeah. like, uh, the drug's not working. I mean, not while Spock's there. And, yeah. and and McCoy doesn't even justify it. He's like, eh, don't worry. We'll get the drug. <laughs> I know. We'll get the real drug. Don't. And I, I expected some sort of, you know, well, there's no reason for Spock to know that. And as long as he believes that'll keep his health up or something like that. Right. He doesn't right. even give that like 10 second, you know, explanation of why he's lying. She's just like, hey, you're lying. And he's like, eh, shut up. <laughs> right, right. But but it is interesting to me that, you know, through all the medical stuff that we tackle in this episode, McCoy has this moment of existential crisis about his career. Mm-hmm. Where, and he, he relays this to Kirk. He's like, um, I'm no good. It's just uh, it's the technology. It's the drugs. I'm nothing. And I should have never done this. Well, he doesn't quite say that he should never have done it. He says he doesn't know what the point of being a doctor is if he doesn't right, have right, all that right. stuff. And I got to say, I was kind of there with him for a second. <laughs> I mean, if he can't, you know, come up with anything else at all aside yeah. from this one drug, and you know, no offense to him, it's not like I could cure it. Right. right. <laughs> but, but the fact that he wasn't, you know, in the lab working on something else, maybe. You know, mm-hmm. that might do it or trying to come up with a drug concoction or an exercise or, or maybe rebuilding dialysis. I mean, the fact that he right. wasn't trying to do anything, but just, oh, man, if, if we don't have cough syrup, I got nothing. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. that's I, I, I'm kind of with him. Well, well, maybe maybe he to... should have been a plumber. Yeah. <laughs> well, doctors have to deal with ambiguity. And, and you, you'd think, you know, if anybody <laughs> could take bad news, Spock could take bad news yep. and, and, and adjust accordingly. That, that's the important thing. Yeah. I, I have to say, Ken, I mean, th- this episode is full of Star Trek stuff. Whether or not it's a great episode, whether or not we like the episode, it's full of Star Trek stuff. You, you've got, first of all, and I know you love this for the, the continuity, at least being able to look back, mm-hmm. um, big time reference to our previous encounter with the Orions in Journey to Babel. And, yes. and even though we, we don't actually see the Orions as Orions, we see one as an Andorian. Um, we get to talk about the treaty. We actually mention name drop Babel. All of that stuff is kind of cool that shows you that uh, the, the writer here knew his stuff. He had been watching Star Trek and was writing this into his stories. You get some pretty decent Spock-McCoy banter. It may not be the best, but it it is still um, like those characters. Yes. So I thought that was quite good. I also like the fact that Bones actually admits to liking Spock in this. I mean, not not, yeah, to, not yeah. to his face, of right. course, because right. that's never going to happen. Well, not never, but almost yeah. never going to happen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, saying basically when, when the only person around is Kirk, he's like, yeah, you know, I, I act like I don't like him, but oh, I'd hate for anything to happen. Right. Yeah, right. which is kind of sweet because we haven't seen that kind of uh, – we haven't seen that kind of um, – uh, softness between the two of them, I don't think, since the original series. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I love that Kirk gets to risk his life for Spock here. You know, it, it's 
It's something that is right from the character. He's endangering himself, yes. He's endangering the Enterprise, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yet again, for the life of one crew member, one who's already unconscious, you know, so he can't even have that argument with Spock like he has before about needing him on this mission um, to go to a science academy opening, but whatever. Um, <laughs> Kirk, Kirk also gets to negotiate in a way that would be breaking the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, basically, he's telling these Orions, okay, I'll let you get away with one crime if you cooperate with what I personally need. Well, not only, not only will he let them get away with the crime, but he'll even pay them. Yeah. Like, yeah okay, so you've, got, you've got what you've got, and that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you more of what you've got, since that's actually what you were after, if you'll just give me this one thing that I need. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. So, you know, of all the things you could chalk up against Kirk, um, if you were to say put him on trial for something, then this is kind of touchy moral area. So uh, but we, we do see the personal side of Kirk here fighting for his friend. No, you do. You, so you do believe that Kirk would have kept his word, right? <laughs> well, I do. I believe he would have kept his word on this, honestly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you have to look at it that way. And, and then, you know, when you file the report, you just go, well, don't know what happened to all that dilithium. <laughs> Too bad about the Huron. We are, Captain we are, O'Shea, I have no idea. Right. We are going to have to kill the crew members of the Huron. <laughs> Huron. Make that look right. like an accident. Maybe sail it into one of those exploding meatball asteroids out there. <laughs> right. Right. Um, I will say, and I know I started this by saying Kirk's a bad captain. I don't really think Kirk's a bad captain, although he does make a couple of questionable choices. There was the mm-hmm. one that I mentioned earlier. And also his priorities, once they get over to the Huron, are completely out of whack. Yeah. This yeah. is exactly how this goes. Scotty, look for the ship's cargo. Uhura, see if you can play back the Huron's log to see what happened here. Mm-hmm. Nurse, attend to the wounded. Okay. <laughs> First of all, I would hope that Chapel would be, you know, on the ball enough that she would go ahead and do that and not wait for Kirk. Right. You know, to say that. But right. uh, that really should have been Kirk's first thing. Yeah. You know, nurse, yeah. these people look like they might be sick. Check on them. Scotty, see if you can find the thing. You do the other thing. Because, I mean, they might not even need to play back the tapes if they save the lives of the people of the Huron. Yeah. 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 Maybe yeah. maybe they'll get to if Kirk thinks of it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, uh, so if I had to wrap up a lesson here, Ken, it might be um, lie to protect your friends. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> what else? What else do we have? Uh, well, if you're a bad guy, never, mm-hmm. ever, ever monologue. We saw this in The Incredibles, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that that'll get you. Uh, we've certainly and, and, seen uh, it in a number of James Bond movies. And Austin Powers then making fun of the James Bond movies. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But but the whole reason, and, and it's good that it failed, but the whole reason that the Orion mission to blow itself up and mm-hmm. blow up the Enterprise failed is because the Orion captain wants to see the look on Kirk's face when he tells him that he's the one who killed him. Right. Now, if he's blowing up the asteroid... He's only going to get to see that look for maybe five <laughs> seconds, right? Right. Maybe ten. Yeah. Um, and maybe he could just close his eyes and imagine the look on Kirk's face while he's blowing up both the ship and the <laughs> Enterprise. That seems to me that that would have been a better use of resources. Now, again, I'm glad it didn't work out that way, but, but pretty much about the only lesson I could get, um, monologuing, you know, will always get you.
don't move a muscle. There's more mission log ahead, right after this. Mego presents the Star Trek action figures featuring the crew of the Enterprise, Captain James T. Kirk, their fearless leader, Dr. Bones McCoy, caring for the health of the Enterprise crew, Scotty, the chief engineer, in charge of the transporter room, Mr. Spock, the Vulcan, second in command, and the Klingon, enemy of the Star Trek crew. Star Trek action figures, complete with accessories shown. Each sold separately from Mego. Where have you been? We were about to start without you. Cartoon number two. Bam. Act one. Exploration and contact. And that's what the Enterprise is up to this episode, and they've got a new pal along with them. Honorary Commander Ari Ben Bam, an independent observer from the recently contacted inhabitants of the planet Pendro. Next stop, Delta Theta 3, home to an evolving race of lizard people. Not much is known about them, but Bam is super excited to join the landing party on this one. Which is odd. The past several missions, he's had no interest in leaving the ship, and now he has no interest in staying on it. Kirk says it's too dangerous and too full of unknowns to take Bam with them, but he insists, and eventually he wins out. Besides, he's already set the transporter for six to Bam down beam down. Scotty says Bem's coordinates look good, and away the men go. Planet side, though, Kirk and Spock rematerialize in mid-air above a body of water. Bem jumps in, ostensibly to offer assistance. But while his head and shoulders are talking to Kirk and Spock above the water, his body, from the waist down, has detached itself, produced two arms, stolen the communicators and phasers of Kirk and Spock, replaced them with fakes, then reattached itself to Bem's upper torso, making him one whole thing again. All of this happened underwater and out of sight. Back on dry land, Scotty says Uhura, back on the ship and monitoring the landing party and the planet, is picking up some sort of energy anomaly. Seems like some sort of sensor field, though not like a manufactured sensor field. It's pretty far away from the landing party, though, and its movements seem natural, not directed. Spock says it may mean there's other intelligent life on the planet, though Kirk says it may not mean that, too. Tell you what, Uhura, keep monitoring and let us know if anything changes. The landing party presses on through a thick rainforest. Spock says it seems young for such an old star. Bem says he's picking up lots of life forms on sensors. Kirk says they need to not be seen, but Bem is headed at a full run toward the life readings. Kirk and Spock aren't too worried, though. The forest is too thick for anyone to get through. Well, anyone who can't separate their head, arms, torso, and legs from each other to sneak through tight spots, which Bem can do and does. Kirk and Spock miss that part, arriving just in time to see a fully assembled Bem walking away. The two Enterprise officers will have to go around, which they do, arriving at Bem's location just in time to see him captured by a bunch of lizard people, dressed as cavemen and wielding weapons. Bem is their prisoner. Act 2 on board the Enterprise, Rx tells Uhura that the sensor anomaly is expanding. She calls the landing party, but is only able to raise Scotty and his people. He says Kirk and Spock are off chasing Bem. Uhura says she can't get them on communicator. Rx will keep searching for them using ship's sensors. She's bringing Scotty and his people back. Per the captain's, if anything goes wrong, bring us all back orders. Kirk, meanwhile, thinks he and Spock should be able to save Bem by having him bemmed out. 
He calls up to the Enterprise and finally finds out about the dummy communicators both he and Spock are toting. And same goes for the phasers. No weapons, no way to communicate, separated from the others. Stuff just got a lot more real. Kirk seems to think it was intentional. Whatever the case, they have to retrieve Honorary Commander Bem, even with no equipment to do so. They follow Bem and his captors back to the captor's village. Spock does a bit more observation. The aboriginal lizard people of this planet have huts, a rough-hewn cage for Bem. They've got language and probably social norms and traditions. When night falls, the two men sneak into the village to spring Bem, but he's annoyed. They'll mess up his observations. That's right, he allowed himself to get caught so he could observe. Kirk tells him it's time to go anyway when he and Spock are captured. Cages all around then. Kirk apologizes to Bem that they'll not be able to rescue him, and Bem starts talking about what a bad Captain Kirk has turned out to be. The people of Pandro, his home planet, will be very disappointed. Kirk points out to Bem that this is actually his fault, not only for running off and getting caught, but for replacing their phasers and communicators with fakes. Kirk's just guessing here, but he's right. Well, if that's all you want, says Bem, I'll give you your phasers and communicators. Kirk wants to know why Bem didn't use them to free himself, and Bem says he wouldn't demean himself with casual use of violence. But if Kirk wants to demean himself, then he should go right ahead and do so. Bem separates his lower half from his upper half, walks the equipment to Kirk and Spock, then puts himself back together. Yes, he could have done that to escape, but then Kirk wouldn't have had the chance to prove to Bem what an awesome captain he is. Or not. Above the planet, the Enterprise is still scanning for Kirk, Spock, and Bem. But the sensor anomaly that they've been monitoring has just expanded to cover a much bigger area. And now it's blocking the region where Kirk, Spock, and Bem would be. Kirk knows something is up. His communicator's not working, so they can't call for the beam out as planned. They'll try to sort of walk away instead. They might be spotted by the lizard people, though, so they'll put phasers on stun, just in case. They are, of course, seen, and raise phasers to clear a path. But they're paralyzed by a light show and a woman's disembodied voice. Who are you? What are you doing? Put down your weapons, and seriously... Who are you and what are you doing? Kirk says they're there to observe, to classify, to run tests. The disembodied voice does not recognize their right to do so, though. The planet is not for their use, and her children are not for their experiments. She makes the phasers disappear and leaves Kirk, Spock, and Bem to be captured by the lizard people. Act 3. Above the planet, Erex thinks he has spotted Kirk and Spock on sensors, though the sensor anomaly is making it tough to say for sure. Scotty says that's good enough for him. They'll take a security squad down to retrieve them. Back in their cages in Lizard Town, Bam is really giving Kirk an earful about how he has screwed this whole thing up. Seriously, Bam's official report to Pandro will be that Kirk is not smart. A frustrated Kirk says, again, they're there because of dumb moves made by Bam. They came to save him so they could save diplomatic relations with his home planet. But Bam says Pandro doesn't care about him. Pandro cares about steering clear of dumb, inefficient societies, like the one Kirk represents. And with that, Bem disassembles, lets himself out of his cage, and walks away, leaving Kirk and Spock as prisoners of the Lizard People. Spock suggests talking to the alien intelligence with which they'd spoken earlier. 
One communicator won't do it, though, but both of their communicators put together might. They'll drain both communicators, however, so they won't be able to call the Enterprise. Still, it's better than staying locked in cages. Kirk contacts the intelligence. He says they will leave and never come back, and, as an added bonus, they'll cordon off the whole planet, making sure that no one ever bothers them again. The entity agrees that that's a good deal. She'll let them call their ship. One more thing, says Kirk. We've got another guy running around out here. We'll need to find him, too. That's a non-starter for the entity, though. The two men will have to go... now. Kirk doesn't think so. After the entity is apparently gone, Kirk radios the Enterprise to beam down a security squadron with tricorders set to track a Pendronian. They beam down, free Kirk and Spock, and begin looking for Bem. Also, says Kirk, don't hurt anyone. Lightest stun setting possible. And only fire if you absolutely have to. Which they absolutely have to do in about ten seconds. The lizard people flee, and Bem says he's ashamed. Though it's unclear why exactly. There are, of course, plenty of reasons to be ashamed. It's still unclear why he is. So Kirk takes off a few. Bem has endangered everyone and caused the Enterprise to interfere with a race that deserves the protection of the Prime Directive. All of this commotion reattracts the attention of the alien entity. She is upset. Kirk and Spock were supposed to leave. Instead, here are all of these people. Interfering. Ever the quick thinker, Kirk says, Look, this guy is our responsibility. We have to take care of him, just like you have to take care of the people here. Plus, if we had left him, he might have interfered with your... your children even more. I see your point, says the entity. So, you'll take him and go now? Kirk agrees. There's just one issue. Bem is once again embarrassed. And this time we know why. His job was to judge. But that probably shouldn't have been his job. And he was wrong. So now he'll have to kill himself. Well, disassemble. But permanently. His unity is defective, and so his unity must cease to exist. Hold on a minute, says the alien intelligence. You don't mess up and kill yourself. You mess up, learn from your mistakes, then go forward smarter. Hopefully messing up less as you go. Put another way, you live and you learn. Bem is confused that the alien entity demands no punishment, but the alien says he's confusing punishment with revenge. Punishment is only good as a teaching tool when nothing else will work. Bem is beyond that. Revenge, on the other hand, is not for intelligent beings. The alien entity is beyond that. Bem is humbled. Kirk is ready to leave. They quarantine the planet. The entity offers one final message. Go in peace. Go in peace. You have learned much. Be proud. Now get out of here, you big nuts. The end. I'm sure that everybody knows this, but uh, we have to point it out that it is Nichelle Nichols as the voice of the alien godlike entity. And, uh, <laughs> a little too much, sounding a little too much like Uhura, honestly. There was even less much. trying to sound different to the point that, you know, I mean, there, there were two things that I kept wanting to see. Like, if you were going to Mystery Science Theater 3000, this whole thing. Right. They, they say a few times, Kirk says a few times that his name is James Tiberius Kirk. And I kept wanting Spock mm -hmm. to turn to him and go, your middle name is Tiberius. <laughs> right, right. And the other thing, you know, when, when the alien entity starts talking to them, I, I wanted Kirk to go, Uhura, are you messing with us? <laughs> right, right. Because you sound so much... And then, you know, when the thing radioed the last message, Uhura should have been like, wow, that's kind of eerie. 
<laughs> sounds like me. Yeah, it sounds a lot like me. That's. <laughs> I should probably get somebody else to do my voice. Right. Hey, uh, BEM, B-E-M, mm-hmm. is an acronym for Bug-Eyed Monster. Mm-hmm. It's kind of an old staple of science fiction. And um, like other episodes, I mentioned that this was a David Gerald script mm-hmm. submitted for season three of TOS. But it was rejected at that time in part because of the difficult special effects. They did not know how you would disassemble a guy and put him back together. Yeah. So, um, yeah. That made it a little bit easier for animation. Incredibly difficult. They might have yeah. tried like a Doctor Shrinker kind of thing instead of like the whole disassembling thing. But mm, then, of course, mm-hmm. you don't get you don't get the very end where he says, "Oh, this this unity, right? This unity's got to go." Have you right. read? Um, oh, what was it? A fire upon the deep or a deepness in the sky? I think it was a fire upon the deep by I, uh, Werner Vinge. No, I do not know that. Um, great book, but it actually, it reminded me a little bit, the whole idea of the colony alien or the colony uh, mm, being, mm-hmm. um, he's got, and I can't remember the names of the aliens, but he's got a, a race of aliens that are actually all packs of dogs or packs of dog type creatures. Mm-hmm. And their pack makes a whole entity that can move around in their society and that can communicate well and things like that. And there's actually oh, a wow. fascinating thing in, in, in one part of it where, I, I, forgive me if I'm spoiling this, although it happens very early in the book. Um, one of the packs of dogs who, who we're not even familiar with yet is in a battle and most of his pack is destroyed. And there's pretty much like this one guy who ends up having to become a part of a different pack. And, huh. and so he actually gets absorbed into this other consciousness and becomes part of that other consciousness, almost in a bored kind of way. But it wow. actually it wow. made me think a lot of, of them. Like, so if his... Unity is dissolved. <laughs> then do they? Does he go like into a Jawa carrier? And they're like, okay, well, we've got a decent Bem head here, but you know, we need <laughs> right, a, right. a nice broad Bem chest over there. So maybe this, maybe this Unity will work. I don't know. Wow, it really yeah. was. It was a fascinating idea for a for a uh, for a, for an alien. It really the, is, despite the maybe generic Bem, you know, right. kind of thing. Right. I gotta say. um there was there was there's one thing that I, I feel like Scotty dodged a bullet in this episode. How <laughs> so? So so Bem sets the transporter coordinates, right? Yeah. And and Scotty looks him over and he says, Oh, this will great. And then they transport down and they transport over water so right. that you know, and Bem has set that up so that he can, you know, go underwater and steal Kirk and Spock's yeah, phasers. Yeah. Um and then Kirk's like, Bem you let a professional handle the transporter controls from now on. Okay, his top transporter guy actually checked the coordinates first. <laughs> That's very true. Right? Yeah. I would have turned to Scotty at that point and said, well, where were you on that one, genius? Right. You know, but instead, right. he's just like, oh, bam. You're just, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, it was not cool. It was not cool. Um, hey, I, we get to see Uhura in control again. Yeah. Uh, they find it, finally put her in control again, which is kind of cool for a moment. Well, and yet, <laughs> yeah. I had a weird, I had a weird sort of thing about this, right? So, yeah, yeah, eh, it would have been sort of the Promethean thing that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. So, Uhura says, "All right, Scotty, come on back because you know things have gone haywire, and the captain's orders were that you were supposed to come back." Mm-hmm. And Scotty's like, "Well, I can actually, you know, I can look for him down here." And Uhura yeah. says, "The orders were to come back, <laughs> right?" Right? And Scotty's like, "Yeah, you're right." So he beams back up, but at that point, once he's back on the ship, he's now senior officer on board, yeah. and so now yeah. he's in control. Could he yeah. not have then said, "All right, new rule"? 
I'm beaming back I'm down to find back. the captain. Uhura, you're in charge. And then he beams down and she's like, hey, uh, Scotty, by the way. Beam back up. Yeah, right. And we're just, this is just a crazy sort of, uh, this is a crazy sort of, uh, almost like a Three Stooges kind of just the drop the vernacular, episode. pick up the hat. Yeah. <laughs> Put your right hand on the Bible. Take off the hat. Drop the vernacular. Okay. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, it's another Star Trek episode. We get to set up the safety cones around the planet. Yep. And say, uh, don't get here. Just uh, really not enough of that in uh, in Star Trek. There are a lot of planets we should not be visiting. Um, and uh, here we have an entity that acts as a god. We've seen this before. And it is worth pointing out that this was Gene's suggestion to David Gerald. And and yes, David Gerald also felt like that had been done before. Um, so his original story didn't have that, but he uh, he, he took Gene's notes and uh, tried to kind of pull it all together, and was ultimately pretty satisfied with uh, with the way that shook out. But well, I mean, you say you have a character acting as a god. I mm-hmm. mean, uh, there are a few things I would say about this. First of all, it wasn't clear to me that the character was acting as God as much as the character was shepherding a group of people to something. Sure. sure Whether sure, that's sure. acting as God. I mean, it's sort of uh, we're going to immediately jump to, oh, like God. Well, we would say God-like powers. The yeah, well. ability to you know, stop people from doing what they're doing, help people, dole out punishment if punishment is appropriate. You know, yeah, but it's the whole sufficiently advanced technology thing. I mean, we, yeah, yeah. you know, we have godlike powers compared to somebody from 200 years ago, right? Right. And just by virtue of the fact that I, you know, I'm willing to sign a two-year contract that says I'll pay you however much <laughs> per year to be able to walk around with this thing and, like, you know, look up who starred in what movie at any given time, and that right. would be enough to really, you know, cow right. a whole city. Either that or have me burn at the stake. Yes. Um, yes. We got to say really quickly too, Uhura back in command. That ain't nothing. God's a woman. In this episode, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is kind of an interesting idea. And even if you want to say, well, it's not really God, though. She's a scientist and she's running stuff. Okay. Mm-hmm. A scientist running stuff is a woman. Yeah. And yes, I mean, we had, you know, Madame Curie. <laughs> <laughs> right. But we also had Robert Oppenheimer. I mean, we have we have more male scientists that we can name to that point. And, you know, yeah. still today, sadly, as far as famous scientists. We had more male scientists that we that we can name than females. It's an interesting idea. Now I don't know if it's because Scotty was already bumping up. I'm sorry. I don't know if it was because Duan was already bumping up against you know four voices that week. And so they're like, <laughs> yeah, no, no, we are not paying you to do a fifth voice. Uh, Uhura, I'm sorry, Nichelle. I'm just going to start calling them by their character names now. Yeah. Now that, that was David Gerald's suggestion. He he wanted Nichelle. I mean, they're they're friends, and uh, he really wanted her to do that voice. And cool. Well, yeah, that's they really kind of neat then that, mm-hmm. yeah, that, yeah, I mean, that they made either God or the scientist or the person in ultimate control, mm-hmm. uh, a lady, yeah, um, which I like to call a woman. I gotta, I gotta say the whole thing about treating, treating this thing like a God, right? Yeah. Um, when Spock, you know, is, so Kirk tries to call and there's no answer and Spock says, well, how about an offering of some sort mm-hmm. uh, to which Kirk replies, I don't think we can bribe it. And we have to be honest. Uh-huh. Now, that that whole thing kind of confused me a little bit. It was Spock suggesting chicanery? Like, is he saying, mm-hmm. well, offer it something, you know? Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. We got nothing to offer, but go ahead and offer it something. Or is he suggesting that they treat this thing that's acting as a god the way that it apparently, you know, might want to be treated? I don't want to say apparently wants to be treated, but might want to be treated. In other words, you know, do you come to it and say, oh, Weird disembodied voice that sounds a lot like my communications officer. Uh, I will give you fealty. 
I will give you loyalty. I will give you love and respect if you will please, you know, get me out of this situation. Um, or or was or was Spock saying, you know, tell it we got dilithium. <laughs> <laughs> and at the same time, I mean, when Kirk says they have to be honest, is he saying to Spock, we can't lie to get out of this situation? So I'm not going to yeah. tell it. You know, I'm going to give it. You know. What would God want with the starship anyway? Huh? <laughs> I'm not going to tell him we're going to give it a ride someplace. Or is he saying, look, we're done with this God thing. We've been done with this God thing like nine times. And I'm not about to start. I'm not going to pull some, you know, borderline deathbed confession to make this thing feel good to get what I want. Yeah. I don't know which well, one. I don't know which one it was that Kirk was saying when he says, you know, we have to be honest here. And I don't well, know yeah, which that's... I don't know which Spock was encouraging, actually. Is he saying? I mean, is it the whole thing like at the end of um, Who Mourns for Adonai when he says, you know, would it have hurt us too much to find him a laurel wreath? Mm-hmm. I mean, because Kirk has decided at one point, yeah, no, that would have been wrong. Right. right, right. <laughs> and, well, I, in my mind, they're looking at experience. It's like, you know, one one trip to the planet of the feeders of Val mm-hmm. and, uh, and having to give Val what he wants to keep him happy to uh, not rain lightning down upon your head it's like well okay maybe this is the reasonable tactic to take until we have more information you know because we know how this will go we know how this will go we'll we'll, we'll play along for a little bit we'll uh, we'll assume that this alien entity can be appeased in some way until we can find out what actually makes it tick now like Every godlike creature or creature with godlike powers that we have found so far, they have all been just beings with powers beyond our understanding. And uh, we get to ultimately negotiate, even if that negotiation is just get out of here. I don't want to see you again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I think that uh, Spock was probably taking a, a logical approach given the information at the time. Okay, so what, I, I still don't know, though, what you're saying that he was offering. Is he saying they should have offered fealty? Uh, probably, maybe. See, that, yeah. doesn't, that doesn't sound yeah. like Spock, and that definitely doesn't sound like Kirk. Yeah. So you think Kirk was saying, we're not going to pretend to be God-fearing people when we don't think this is God? Uh, yes. Yes, okay. I do. Yeah. All right. That makes yeah. sense to me. I mean, yeah. it was just... Yeah. I mean, it, and it was an interesting point of debate, which is what we've done for the past two or three minutes. <laughs> there you go. Um, I, I like that there are dual missions going on in this episode. Mm-hmm. So I like the layers of this episode that Ben is watching the crew and messing with them mm-hmm. <laughs> just constantly. Uh, and the Enterprise crew is watching the aliens on this planet. And then the godlike entity is watching all of them. Um, yeah. th- this is all about negotiating cultural differences. And uh, I, I thought it was a pretty complex set of stories here for a 24-minute story and a cartoon. Um, I'm not saying it's a great, great story, but it definitely feels like a story written by a Star Trek writer. Yeah. You know, all, all the hallmarks are there. We're, we're exploring. We're meeting new aliens. We're not killing them. Um, there's some good character banter, a little touch of the God question in there, So, which I mentioned we have Gene to thank for that. Um, we have the whole thing that can you really love and I really love, which is the whole idea of living up to ideals and not using violence. I mean, I, I would even say that maybe this is more successful than more troubles, more troubles. And if we look at the David Gerald contributions to the uh, the animated series, oh, I w- I would almost say that this is actually more. Um, I would almost say that this is better than more troubles, more troubles. Or more troubles, more troubles. The trouble with troubles, excuse the me. The trouble, yeah, <laughs> and those troubles, too. Yeah, whichever, you know. It's, yeah, yeah. I, I, I I, there, was a lot, there was a lot of interesting stuff here. I mean, we found a lot of great stuff. 
Mm-hmm. I got to give him hat. I mean, I got to give my hats off to him. I got to give him props. I mean, he's a, he's a good writer. I mean, yeah. he, he's now that we were able to actually, you know, stand back and see three of his stories. I did not like more troubles, more troubles, but that just felt sort of like a tip of the hat to, you know, stuff that had come before. Sure. sure. Um, this, 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 I thought was a really interesting story. I love the layers of it. And I love the fact that Spock was even able to be fooled by this whole thing. Right. So Bem says I got captured to observe or yeah. no, actually Spock says you got, you got captured so you could observe. And Bem's like, yeah, well, you, yeah. what better way to do it? And and the assumption on everybody's part is that he wanted to observe the lizard people, and so he's going to be right down in the middle of that. He doesn't give a wet slap about the lizard people. He wants to observe Kirk and Spock. Really, right. he wants to observe Kirk. And 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 there's almost like a primacy about the whole thing where Spock's like, okay, well that might be an interesting way to you know view these dumb savage lizard people, you know. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't even cross his mind that he's actually the one being observed, or that Kirk is actually the one being observed in this whole thing. I do have a question about the lizard people. Okay. Kirk says that the lizard people, uh, and I don't think they ever gave him a name, uh, um, that the lizard people deserve the protection of the prime directive. Um, what about the god lady who, you know, keeps talking about them as her children? Mm-hmm. They're, they're not, the prime directive really has very little to do with these lizard people, right? Yeah. Um, now, Kirk is siding with the authority. Mm-hmm. Never questioning. I mean, Spock makes the assumption that that this godlike thing is shepherding the lizard people to intelligence. But the only reason we're getting that is because this godlike thing says that that's what they're doing, right? Right. The assumption right. seems to be, well, authority. So you know, authority. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like let that be your last battlefield. Here's well, here's yeah. this one guy who who is obviously. He's chasing the other guy, so he must be the authority. So we're going to go ahead and sit with him because he must be cool. Because look, I got braids on my sleeve, and he has one too. And I'm sure if this <laughs> godlike thing, uh, you know, had sleeves, then it would also have braids. Well, um, Ken, as, as we just learned, bad guys like to monologue. That's and, true. Uh, if this godlike entity had monologued and said, "I'm raising a race of lizard people, super soldiers, to take over the galaxy," then then we would have reason to not believe her <laughs> but uh or or to you know start something with her uh but in this case you know she sounded nice yeah she sounded nice <laughs> so we don't actually know i mean that's it was weird to me that he invoked the prime directive because the prime directive really only seems to apply to this godlike thing in the sky yeah. Yeah. that's the one who's not going to get messed with and and kirk says that he's you know affected he's endangered these people who deserve the the, the protection of the prime directive mm-hmm. they're not getting that at all i mean if if she it what have you is sitting up in a laboratory in the sky trying to figure out, you know, okay, well, what if we add this? Or what if we do this? Or what if we take away that? Yeah. I mean, even the whole thing of removing people from outside of the planet system, right? Making mm-hmm. sure that no people ever come here again. Mm-hmm. That is, I mean, that's also screwing with them in a way that the Prime Directive wouldn't necessarily, because who knows? Maybe it is their association with somebody else that is going to give them that idea. Now, the Federation right. might say, oh, we're not going to do that. Right. But there are all kinds of races that are not members of the Federation who are still spacefaring, and they right. don't have a prime directive, and they <laughs> might have no problem going down to that planet, except uh, God Lady is going to knock them out of the sky if they try to, because, you know, this is her experiment. Yeah. And Very it just, true. It struck me as weird that he invoked the prime directive when, when it's, it's completely not applicable in this particular case. 
I would agree with you. Uh, so maybe they didn't learn those lessons, but uh, what about us? What kind of lessons might we pick up from this episode? Um, I, I had a few sort of thoughts. You know, the the thing that struck me here is that we have a pretty good lesson in anthropology. You know, uh, it's pretty cool that the entity doesn't want those people on her planet. A little misplaced ownership there. Uh, Messed with in any way. But then I agree with you. Her imposition is kind of the same thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That she has an imposition at all. It's kind of the same thing. There is an indication, actually, that it is her planet, though. It was that whole thing where Spock said, this is a really young rainforest to be be on a planet Mm -hmm. that's around such an old star. I mean, that would indicate... Uh, well, something miraculous if we want to make her a god or like terraforming or something like that if we want to make her a scientist. Right. Um, she's done – she has done this apparently. Yeah. yeah. Now, at what point are her creations not under her control might be a, uh, something to wonder about. That's a difficult question. Yeah. Th- this does seem to be her her baby. These are her children as she says. We uh, We have a moment – at the very end of this episode that is kind of like a moment that we touched on in last week's uh, podcast, that Star Trek lays down this foundation for awe and wonder at the universe. You know, and they say, you know, basically we are naive children. We're not stupid, but we're uninformed. Mm-hmm. And we will have to go on learning in order to even begin to grasp the, the scope of the universe, much less our own galaxy. Um, but they, they kind of – they're taken down a notch. They're sort of put in their place by the end of the episode, which is kind of cool. And again, you know, we sort of subvert the idea of traditional religion by presenting a god simply as an intelligence, full of scientific curiosity that has grown beyond our ability to understand. I, I mentioned this before in the discussion that every time we've come across – this kind of super powerful being and we say or we are meant to interpret it as a god and using that in quotes by the time we get to the end of the episode we go no this is a being this is a being that has powers that we don't have and they're doing their own thing and maybe we should stay away (laughs) you know so do you think gene roddenberry wanted to insert god just to subvert god because david gerald did not originally want to have this be a god story at all like, no, but Gene Roddenberry is like, oh no, let's make it God, and then but let's add this part where God's not really God. No, no, I, I don't think it's as specific as that. I, I think the the subversion is just kind of this this ongoing message that we get in Star Trek that that when we're presented with power that we don't understand, rather than cowering down, we try to understand it and we try to contextualize it and figure it out with the rest of the galaxy, with the rest of the known universe. So I don't think it's something as specific as, as just saying, I'm going to put in subversion for the sake of subversion. But I do think that it is a, a, a thread that we see every now and then as Gene Roddenberry is sort of grappling with this idea of what, what, what is it that when we see something makes us fear it or worship it, as opposed to trying to understand it. Hmm. All right. So there you go. Um, I think this episode also has a pretty interesting argument about when it's okay to break the rules. <laughs> you know, um, we see that a couple of times in here. And, um, and I think the big thing here is clearly not taking error and punishment too seriously. The, the, the entity on this planet has no concept of punishment. You know, you could extrapolate this pretty far, Probably a good lesson for kids not to beat themselves up too badly about making mistakes. 
Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I disagree with you, actually, though. It's not that it doesn't have a concept of punishment. It just doesn't see the point in punishing them. Mm-hmm. I mean, she actually makes the case. She's like, punishments, I think, she, what was it I said earlier? Punishment's only good as a teaching tool when nothing else will work. Yeah. And Bem's smart enough that he doesn't need to be punished. Uh, and at the same time, okay, so then what's her other option? Well, she can beat the crap out of him just because, you know, she's mad, but right, but right. she's smarter than that. This is not about punishing because he can learn without punishment, but it's also not about revenge because revenge is for idiots and she's yeah. not one. Very, very true. So, I mean, I'm not sure though, I mean, for you to say that she has no concept of punishment, it's more like... It's more like she doesn't feel the need for it in this case. It honestly makes me fear for the lizard people as soon as they leave. Yeah, I know, right? Why did you run away from him? You do not run away. You stand <laughs> here and I'm going to hit you to prove to you that you really shouldn't run away from things that are scary and might hurt. Right, right. Well, you know, Bem's problem, Bem, Bem did not adapt well to new information. And, and he decided that he needed to die which was really sorry, disassemble. And, yeah. and it is really, really strange. Um, his job was to observe and judge. He made a misjudgment. He got the observation part down, albeit from a weird point of view. Yeah. But uh, he, he misjudged. And that just means you have to change the judgment. You don't have to beat yourself up over it. Um, I would hate to know what the ordinances are like on his planet. Ordinances or ordainments? Ordainments. Yeah. Or both. Yeah, either or. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's actually weird. We got two episodes here where people are like, oh, man, I failed. I have to kill myself. I know. We actually know. we actually didn't mention in the last episode, but the the Orion captain is like, yeah. So it was like, we're gonna kill ourselves, and and the Orion captain's like, yeah. Every failed Orion mission ends in suicide. <laughs> I know. How did they even ever get off their planet? Yeah, right. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, not to make light of some of the spacefaring disasters we've had, but we've had a few. You know, yeah, yeah, and and the idea that like, well, uh, yep. you guys, everybody involved with this, off Too yourself, bad. and then yeah. we're at that point, we're like another two hundred years from, oh, from even knowing how to get off the planet again, and then being not afraid to try again. Um, yeah, suicide comes up a lot for a Saturday morning cartoon. <laughs> twice in a row, twice Ouch. in a row, yeah, twice in a row, and one of your main characters may die as well. So yeah, yeah. So buy those toys, kids, and that cereal. Time to do that thing that we uh, always forget to do, or about half the time forget to do. Uh, what do you think of these episodes, as far as like them or not? Uh, start with the, um, the, the the Pirates of Oreos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, I, I like these episodes uh, quite a bit. The Pirates of Orion, I, I thought was not a great episode, but there were enough good ideas there, and particularly enough good drama dealing with Spock, that I, I thought that kind of saved it. You know, uh, once we actually got to the Orions, I thought the episode became weaker, to be quite honest, um, because the, the whole contrivance of the, the suicide pact and the, the, the monologuing of the bad guy, I'm going to blow up the asteroid and all that feels a bit tacked on. But I think that everything else, just the, the drama of what was happening with Spock and the importance of it, and we got character moments out of it, pretty good. So I liked it. I didn't love it. Uh, Bem, I almost felt the same way, but I, I coming at the end of Bem going, wow, well, we, we tackled a lot mm-hmm. in this episode. And even though Bem is kind of irritating <laughs> as a character, yeah. uh, this is a character written so that eight-year-olds could get it that he's irritating and not doing a very good job. Um, 
again, I feel like the hallmarks of Star Trek are there and we get to deal with some pretty big topics and, and put kind of a, a, a fine point on how it is that we behave in the Star Trek universe. So uh, how about you, Ken? I, I, you have a lot more use for the Pirates of Orion than I do. Mm-hmm. I just, I, it's yeah. it, about like last week with, um, with the jihad, but even less to take out of it. I mean, at least with the mm-hmm. jihad, you had the, uh, you had the idic idea, even though they didn't say it again. It, right. the whole idea that you know it, it takes a village, right? It takes a bunch of people. Kirk is not going to do this whole thing by himself, and so often Kirk does the whole episode by himself. All the yeah. action revolves around Kirk. In the jihad, all of the action did not revolve around Kirk, and so even though I found that 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 the plot incredibly frustrating of the jihad, mm-hmm. I at least felt like there was stuff to pull out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, that the only lesson I could pull out of uh, the slavers, not the slavers, the the pirates of Orion, yeah, that the only lesson that I could pull out of that is don't monologue if you're a supervillain. <laughs> yeah, indicates to me that that was 24 minutes. That you know, I I, I love the look of the pirates of Orion. I mean, really? really? I really? love their look. Yes. Wow. They're fantastic. There's wow. like a cross between a superhero and a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, which were also <laughs> kind of heroes, you know, on the yeah. half shell, I'll grant you. But still, they're flying a ship that looks like something out of Galaxian or Galaga. You know, oh, I mean, right. there's, there's, there's a lot yes. to actually like about the uh, the design, I think, in that episode. But there just wasn't enough there there for me. Okay. Um, right. Completely on the other end of that. The, the David Gerald uh, episode, and we're in the middle of it, and I can't remember. Bam. Bam. Bam, um, yeah. Bam I found um, there was just so much here. There was just a tremendous amount here that I, I thought it was just fantastic. And, again, it helps to have a writer. Mm-hmm. There was – I think it's because nobody was recording together, right? Everybody was just sort of wildlining, weren't they? And then it was being yeah. put together later. You almost never get – good voice acting in these. I think you did in the first few episodes because they were together, but then afterwards it very much sounds like, you know, they're they're giving you four or five reads of each line and moving on, giving you four or five reads of each line and moving on. We actually got acting out of Shatner in this episode. His his frustration with Bem. Yeah. And, and if, I mean, unless, unless the guy who was directing had a different directing style than Hal Sutherland, or if the mm-hmm. person who was guiding the record session had a different, you know, directing style than the person who had guided them before or whichever, my assumption is it's just the words on the page. And the yeah. words on the page are, look, you're still Captain Kirk, all right? You want to be cool, but you're, you're starting to lose it. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. But you're not going to lose it yet, right? So you actually have Kirk in a cage going, you, <sighs> okay, right? And and we have not had, we haven't had voice acting. We've had people doing voices. We haven't had voice acting much in the cartoons. And yeah, so yeah. to me, there's just really a lot to recommend it. I don't think it's my, I don't think it's the best of the animated series, but sure. you know, I'd say it's in the top 22. <laughs> There you go. There you go. And hey, don't forget the voice acting of the very bored, very uh, indifferent computer in uh, The Pirates of Orion. That was kind of awesome. You know, she's she's got like a six-month-old at home at this point, doesn't she? (laughs) Probably so, yes. Still need to track that kid down. Tell you what. Very, very tired. I'm going to start looking into whatever happened to him. Why don't you tell people what's up next week? All right, Ken. Next week will land us in the dead center of season two of Star Trek the Animated Series as we take on the practical Joker and the Albatross. Albatross!
Music Formation Log provided by Big Organ Trio. Find their self-titled album on iTunes. Additional music provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. And from the album Messages by Key Theory. Free to download at kitheory.com. Not to freak you out, but I think I saw a bug-eyed monster hiding under your bed. Relax though, it may have just been a regular-eyed monster. Have a great week. And transmission. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.